Welcome to Scrubcast, where we explore clinical, translational, and health services research from Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the authors. I'm Rachel Baker. Today we're doing a special episode on Holman Day, our annual celebration of all things science honoring former department chair Dr. Emil F. Holman. This year's Holman Day was held on May 13th, and we were delighted to be joined by alumna Dr. Daniela Ladner as our keynote speaker. Holman Day also includes a poster and podium presentation competition for our trainees. Today, I'm joined by two of those winners. We're going to start with Dr. Jeff Choi, a resident in our general surgery program who is on the brink of finishing his professional development years. His winning podium presentation in the clinical and health services research category was titled, Tackling the Bedside Artificial Intelligence Barrier. Natural Language Processing to Extract Injury ICD-10 Diagnosis Codes Real-Time from Electronic Medical Records. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Happy to be here. Awesome. So tell me, how did you first get interested in artificial intelligence? I think I came across a couple articles about artificial intelligence and machine learning applications to medicine to improve patient care delivery as I was wrapping up my first master's degree. And I realized that, of course, Stanford was leading a lot of these efforts to integrate artificial intelligence within clinical decision-making. The more and more I dug into it, I realized that this is something that I really would be excited to be a part of. I applied and was able to join the bioinformatics graduates program and you know, the rest is history from there. That's right. You are getting your second master's degree this month? Yes. Hopefully I passed all my courses uh, this quarter. <laughs> as, long as, I, as long as I passed all my courses, I should have my degree this month. Excellent. That's awesome. Uh, well, so I think one of the main takeaways for me from your presentation was about designing for the end user. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to that conclusion? You know, that's, that's such a great question, Rachel. I think there is a lot of interest in applying different machine learning algorithms or computer vision, different subfields within artificial intelligence to uh, better improve patient care. Uh, but unfortunately, there is emerging evidence that despite the surging interest in these studies, very few machine learning or artificial intelligence-based models actually make it to the patient bedside. And even if they do, extremely few of them have actually shown to improve any outcomes, which you know, really begs the question, if we're putting all this effort into designing high-performing models, we really want them to improve patient outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. Some authors and you know, really... Uh, thought leaders have pointed out the fact that the reason for this gap between the publications and the bedside, this I, I call it the database to bedside gap, mm -hmm. is because these studies don't really have, a lot of the studies don't have the end user in mind mm -hmm. in the sense that they don't really think about how the model could be implemented at the bedside. Um, so, so that's where the whole discussion came to thought is, you know, it's not an idea I came up with. It's uh, it's an idea that's been going around the academic circle within machine learning literature for, um, you know, the past few years now. 
Nice. Well, so who is Bert, aside from Ernie's best friend on Sesame Street? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the Bert I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so uh, Bert is an acronym which stands for Bidirectional Encoder Representation from Transformers. Uh, I understand why so you there's call it Bert. Yeah, so there's different types of Bert. You can essentially think about it as a type of an algorithm. Mm-hmm. And they have things like PubMed BERT. So this is a BERT model that was trained using the PubMed database. Oh. You know, they have uh, a bunch of other BERT models. So we, we call ours Trauma BERT because it has to do with trauma ICD codes. Um, so there, there's, you know, our trauma, trauma ICD BERT is one of, I don't know how many there are, but there are probably close to 100, if not more, of these something, something BERT models going wow. around. And it's about a specific natural language processing algorithm design. Cool. And so um, with your BERT design, what did you create? Sure. So essentially the problem we're trying to tackle is the fact that we, as clinicians, we write a lot of notes Mm -hmm. that describe patient injuries. And specifically for trauma patients, we write these notes called trauma tertiary surveys, which succinctly summarize the list of injuries that a patient has. The concern today is the fact that although we write a lot of these notes, these notes usually don't get converted into ICD-10 codes until uh, about a month or so after a patient leaves the hospitals. Mm. And ICD-10 codes are the language that allows researchers and billers to capture clinical information using a common vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So if you read up on any, essentially across any fields within medicine, uh, a lot of them use ICD codes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of prediction tools that try to predict you know, patients' risk of mortality or adverse events, uh, injury severity score, something that quantifies injury severity, a lot of these are based off of ICD-10 codes. But the problem today is that we're not able to use many of these tools real time while a patient is actually in the hospital mm-hmm. because this translation from the English language that we type into the electronic medical record to the ICD-10 code language doesn't happen until after a patient leaves the hospital. Um, so that's where trauma ICD comes in is it's trying to do that translation uh, a lot more quickly right at the bedside. Neat. Well, so you are a wonderful presenter. What tips do you have for giving a standout podium presentation? Well, that's, that's, that's super kind of you. I'll, I'll start off by saying that I, I'm not a natural public speaker. I get very tachycardic when I stand in front of the audience still. And I, I don't think, I still have a long ways to go, but I, I do think I am better than uh, where I was when I started my professional development time. And I owe a huge amount of thanks to Dr. Thomas Crummel, who gave a great presentation uh, as a part of our professional development boot camp put on by the Aspire Group. And he gave a fantastic talk on how to give a great presentation. And I think his slides are available online. The number one takeaway is practice, practice, and practice. Mm. So the... I believe the tip he gave was something on the order of 
know, if you have a one minute talk, you need to prepare 20 or uh, 30 times uh, that amount. So if it's a one minute talk, you should prepare for 20 to 30 minutes. I think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still at about 60 X uh, stage where if I'm giving a 10 minute talk, I think I probably put in about 10 hours of preparation to give that talk. And just the preparation has helped me deliver more polished presentations. Hmm. I love that you call it tachycardia. A surgeon won't be nervous. They're tachycardia. <laughs> I love the inclusion of the QR code in your presentation. What led you to do that? So I saw, again, like most things that I'm doing, a lot of these things were great ideas that someone else already came up with, and I just happened to see them. So I saw a tweet on Twitter from Dr. Elliot Hot at Johns Hopkins, and he this tweet had a picture of a poster with a QR code that described the methods in depth. And his tweet was talking about how brilliant of an idea it is because a lot of people, when they're looking at posters, are interested in the key takeaways and not necessarily in the line-by-line -line methodology. Mm -hmm. And I, as I was reflecting back on my own experience as a listener at conferences and presentations, at least for me, I realized that I really only remember a minority of presentations that I listened to. And for those, I only remember one or two key takeaways. Mm. And so when I realized this, I tried to pay a little bit more attention to which parts of the presentations I was actually paying attention to. I realized that I really didn't pay that much attention to the methodology in the sense that I paid a lot more attention to things like why the study was being done and what was the final result and what was the implications. But especially if it's in a field that I'm not familiar with, my mind sort of slipped as I was listening to the several methodology slides. Mm. So as a presenter, my goal was to keep the audience engaged in my presentation for the entire duration of my talk. And you know, I thought, why not include a QR code to really go in-depth into the methodology so that people who are interested can scan their QR code and read the detailed methodology either right then and there or after the talk for further questions, mm -hmm. and, and this has happened. But for, and I would arguably say, for the majority of the audience who are not too interested in the nitty-gritty details, <laughs> uh, it, would, it, would, it would save them and, and me the effort of having to listen to <laughs> me rambling about things that I, I probably, you know, are, are not that great explaining about. <laughs> well, I think it's genius. Um, it's a nice takeaway especially when you're at something like Holman Day or a conference where you're listening to 16 presentations and maybe you're at the end of the day going through your notes and you think to yourself, gosh, I wish I knew more about blank. I think this research, this specific project gave me a lot of ideas to think more about how to implement my future studies. Mm -hmm. I think for the foreseeable futures, I'll work on building different machine learning based models and for all of them kind of the end goal is actually not to publish a paper in a, in a great journal but to actually build something that's going to improve patient lives or or the patient providers lives and so 
based on some of the lessons that I've learned from this study, you know, when it comes to the specific methodologic details or the way we plan to disseminate this paper and, and the tool, uh, I think this will really serve as a foundation for a big part of my my first years as as an academic surgeon, and that will be you know, how to build useful machine learning based models um, that can be readily implemented at the bedside. So this was really a, a foundational experience for me in terms of my, my overarching academic goals. Awesome. That is so amazing to hear. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. I really appreciate your time. Our next guest is Dr. Cynthia Kimura, a postdoc in the Division of General Surgery who came to us all the way from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be able to talk about my research today. Great. Well, how did you end up at Stanford? Well, that's a long answer. So I moved to the U.S. two years ago uh, Mm -hmm. because of my husband's work. And I was looking for research positions here in the U.S. I had already finished my PhD uh, Mm -hmm. that I did in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And I wanted to continue studying. So I had just published a paper on risk factors for complications in abdominal surgery for Crohn's disease. Uh And in our study, we found out that patients who did preoperative optimization had the same risk of developing complications than patients who didn't do this optimization. Mostly because um, in Brazil, uh, in Sao Paulo, in my service, a lot of our patients with Crohn's disease, they're really malnourished. So mm. oftentimes you have to admit them to the hospital a couple of weeks before surgery to optimize their nutrition and do physical therapy, blood transfusions, and things like that. So it was very interesting that we could, you know, get these patients who are so high risk to having the same risk of, you know, other Crohn's disease patients who weren't so malnourished. Mm-hmm. Um So I knew I wanted to go beyond that and study some strategies to decrease the risk of surgical complications even more. But I wasn't really sure what project I wanted to be part of. And then it came this opportunity to work with Dr. Keen at Stanford as a postdoc. And Mm -hmm. I was really fascinated by how innovative her work was on prehabilitation. I wasn't even familiar with the word prehabilitation at the time. So it, it really, I think when I got to understand what it meant, then I realized it was the perfect thing for me to, to research. So yeah. Awesome. That's my story. I totally see the connection. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it was a coincidence because like at the same time that I published this paper, she had published another paper on patients with inflammatory bowel diseases. So that's, ah. Uh, how I came across her name and, you know, everything worked out so perfectly. Serendipity. Perfect. Yeah. I watched your presentation on YouTube and it's titled Effect of an Online Home-Based Prehabilitation Program on Outcomes After Colorectal Surgery. Yeah. And it looked to me like the data is clearly showing the prehab is working. Yeah. I think we're going in the right direction. Great. (laughs) So... I guess what (laughs) struck me, though, was when you discussed the people who didn't enroll in the program, how are you planning to modify future studies to control for that? 
Yeah, so right now in our study on prehabilitation, we are randomizing patients to either receive prehabilitation through an app mm -hmm. or to just, you know, um, receive some very basic recommendations on what they should do. Like you should just walk uh, three times per, per week and do some strength exercises as you wish. Mm -hmm. um, and so for the patients who are in the intervention arm, we're uh, checking up, checking in with them every week to make sure that they are uh, doing the exercises and following the diet if they have any doubt. Uh, we do uh, track their activity with um, a wearable device uh -huh. as well, so we can monitor. And so every week we log in and see how many steps they're walking per day. And so this is a way that we're trying to improve adherence to prehabilitation mm -hmm. in the intervention arm. Awesome. What about the people who are perhaps are already fit? And so that's why they're capable of doing the program and you're know, doing so well. Is that something that you're worried about? Yeah, definitely. Because this could be, you know, a very important confounding. So one thing in this study that I presented at home on day, one thing that we worried about is that maybe those patients who are dear to prehabilitation, they were already active mm -hmm. before the program. So it was not actually the program who improved their outcomes. It was, you know, things that they were doing before mm -hmm. as a part of their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So for this study now, we're trying to evaluate the baseline level of activity of the patients. So we asked them to do some tests to see how far they can walk in six minutes, for example, uh -huh. and what are their functional status. So we can control for that in, in future analysis. Awesome. Well, so poster presenting to me seems to be an art unto itself. Uh, <laughs> what tips do you have for giving a great poster presentation? Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. <laughs> 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 I think it's the only tip that I can give. <laughs> I mean, it's hard because the amount of time that we have to present is so short. Right. And we have to really pick what, you know, what is most important about this study. Same with the actual poster itself, you know, the physical poster. It's how do you decide what goes on? It's such a limited space. Yeah, I think. Whenever I have to make a poster, I think it's worse than making an entire podium presentation because it's a lot more work to, you know, condense everything. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I learned is, you know, to try not to make it so cluttered. So try to use images, icons to summarize important concepts mm -hmm. so you don't have a lot of words. And also, like, try to be really mindful about uh, what kind of information you're putting on tables because tables can be very hard to read in a poster, mm. especially with the tidy numbers. So I think that is something that everyone should have in mind as well. Awesome. Thank you for that. Well, you mentioned a little bit about future studies and where you're going. Can you tell us a bit about the project you're currently working on? Uh, yeah, sure. So there are two projects that I'm that I'm working on. One is this uh, randomized clinical trial on prehabilitation, mm -hmm. where we're randomizing patients to either receive an app-based prehabilitation or nothing, mm -hmm. standard or just standard of care. Um, and the other big project that I'm working on is about how diet can affect uh, your microbiome and how that could affect your surgical outcomes in colorectal surgery. 
So in this other study, we're randomizing patients to different diets mm -hmm. to see prior to surgery uh -huh. to see if this short-term dietary intervention can change their microbiome profile and if that could, you know, translate into uh, better outcomes after surgery. Cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. Is one diet all kimchi, fermented foods? and? Yeah, yeah it's not all <laughs> kimchi, but it, it is a lot, you know. We're asking patients to eat uh, six servings of probiotic foods, fermented foods, ah. or eat a lot of fiber, or just keep with their normal diet. Cool. Well, I can't wait to see it. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story. Okay, thank you so much for having me. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. These presentations and all of the research presented at Holman Day can be found on our YouTube channel. A link is available in the description. We want to hear what you think of Scrubcast. You can email us at scrubcast at stanford.edu or hit us up on Twitter at Stanford Surgery. If you like Scrubcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like us, smash that five-star review. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hong.